Hi, and welcome to Match Cut, a movie podcast where we take two movies with the exact same rating on IMDb and break that tie. My name is Aaron. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Matt. Hello, I am here. Hello. Now, before we get to the podcast proper, if you've got a movie you think we need to check out, or maybe even an idea for a future episode, you can tell us at matchcutpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at matchcut. Uh, I feel like I want to bring up quick, uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic, both of us are safe, we are practicing social distancing by recording several hundred miles apart, as we <laughs> always also, do. I am also being forced to practice social distancing because my state has hit the hardest and closed uh, businesses two weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it's hard out there for a pimp. Uh, Academy Award nominated and winning song. Three Six True. Mafia has more Academy Awards than Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> uh, but we're we're both in good health. Uh, if you don't if you don't know us outside of this podcast, which I don't know, but uh, you know, no no review happens in a in a vacuum, and so I can tell you, especially during this movie, I'm just like, oh my god, stop touching each other's faces. <laughs> Like, man, they're way too close to one another. Yeah, not all of these gangsters should be in this room together. (laughs) Um, But in this episode, we're talking about two movies that are based on comic books. Uh, These types of movies seem so commonplace in a post-Iron Man world. Um, But once upon a time, comic books weren't a reliable way to make $27 billion worldwide off a single movie. Um, These are some of those movies that did not have the massive reach of a Marvel franchise. Yeah. I mean, well, the interesting thing is like the, you know, before this, obviously the first big budget, you know, blockbuster comic book film was Superman. Obviously Superman Mm -hmm. being the first credited superhero had his films in the seventies into the early eighties. And then of course, not that long after that, you have the Batman and Batman returns by uh, Tim Burton. Um, Yeah. Uh, Degrees of Separation, actually, uh, the movie, one of the movies we're about to do, had its score done by Danny Elfman, who did the Batman score. And like throughout this, I'm like, they just told him to do the Batman score, but kind of different, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, there was definitely a a formula for hero movies or comic book movies. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to think like what my first comic I watched a lot of like the classic Superman cartoons as a kid. We just had like those on VHS. Yeah. Those also used to play on a cartoon network all the time where you like fought mm-hmm. that giant, like terrible lizard thing that honestly looked a lot like uh, that. Uh, one of those old terrible monster Godzilla ripoffs. <laughs> yeah. I remember the, uh, what now would be disastrously racist portrayals of Japanese people in those move in those no, uh, cartoons. No, 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 no. It's just it's of the times. You got to understand, you know, war, war footing and all that. And um, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely of the times. But going back to it now, which which I have, it's it's rough, man. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> hard hard to look back and be. Able- it's like uh, actually one of the early, like obviously, you know, going even before the movies in the 70s, there were the the movie serials of Batman and Superman and other, you know, knockoffs, ripoffs and what have you. The the Shadow and Dick Tracy, I believe, were among them uh, back in the day. But mm-hmm. um, Batman, the, the, the Batman serials, he specifically was like racist towards Mexicans. <laughs> 
And like, it's so low budget. It's actually what inspired the fifties TV Batman because of how bad it was. Like there's a scene where the guy, the stunt actor, the actor playing Batman is like climbing up a rope and his cigarettes fall out of his back pocket. (laughs) It's like a really cheap, terrible outfit too. Yeah. I think, hmm, I'm trying to think of what the first like comic book movie I saw was. And I think it has, I think it was Blade. Blade, which was the first uh, Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people forget that uh, forget that, that happened and that, that Blade exists as a, is the first Marvel cinematic movie. They didn't put it as a part of a cinematic universe yet, but it looks like they're trying to do that now with Marshall Ali's Blade. Yeah, I mean, they're not getting Wesley Snipes back. I think that they got a little bit better with Marshall Ali. <laughs> I have uh, I have played Trinity on DVD. I've seen that movie mm, five thousand times. Five thousand times. <laughs> really, that movie is only good because of Ryan Reynolds. He absolutely saves that movie. And has done done some good comic book movies since. I just rewatched Deadpool two again recently because I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think um I I wonder I wonder what the shift was. I mean, I it's Iron Man, right? Like Iron Man is is the thing that made comic book movies viable basically. Mm, I'm pretty sure that Batman Begins was the same year. Could be right. Oh, 05. No, it's before Iron Man. Really? Yeah, Batman Begins is the uh the first um modern superhero movie that kind of kicks it off because they got Christopher Nolan, a guy who was already known for kind of more auteur or thinking films. They got him to do a Batman movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Iron Man is not until 08. So that's the first, that's the first of these current, you know, grossing billions of dollars. But what really sets the stage is actually the Warner brothers picture, the, the Batman picture being done by Christopher Nolan. And yeah, it was. Well, there was like a lot of work that went into it, and then even before that, you could say it's the Spider-Man, the Sony Spider-Man films in two thousand two to two thousand five. I think is when the last one actually comes out. Yeah, Spider-Man three, the disastrous ones that kind of in Spider-Man for a while. <laughs> um, I just it's yeah. interesting, kind of going back to these movies and looking at the box office and budgets, you know. Dick Tracy had, and The Shadow had similar-ish budgets, but the box offices were nowhere near the level of uh, what we have today, with one probably being considered a flop um, by yeah. Hollywood accounting, and Dick Tracy also being considered a flop by Hollywood accounting. <laughs> right. That, that no, Hollywood no accounting movie. always, everything's a flop. You know, Return of the Jedi still hasn't made money. Jurassic Park, terrible. Uh, never, never made its money back. Damn. Yeah, not nothing escapes Hollywood accounting, but uh, yeah, I, I I wonder how popular this shadow was in that era because I like I had heard the name the shadow before, but like Dick Tracy, I had I had like read some Dick Tracy, or I think he appeared in like Archie comic books, which I read a lot as a kid. But um, yeah, the shadow I hadn't really heard of. 
Well, both of these have like be, have culturally proliferated to the point where you might not have heard of them, but maybe for a time, especially for millennials like us, you might have heard or seen things that were related to them. I remember there was like, you know, in the 90s when pinball and arcades were still a thing, there was definitely the shadow pinball games and whatnot. And it was harkening back to a Silver Age uh, comics uh, and the, the radio plays that both Dick Tracy and the shadow were a part of. I mean, people like to think that, like, uh, you know, Star Wars is the first true multimedia wonder, but it's like, no, that's that's been a thing since there's been more than one form of media that you could do. Uh, the right. Shadow was originally, I was reading up on it, a character that was the narrator for a Detective Comics Hour radio drama. He was the hmm. guy that would come in and and string them together and it was a way to sell these detective uh this detective magazine of detective shorts um but like people would go to the newsstands and be like do you have that you know that shadow uh serial it's like and so eventually it just became known as like the shadow serial and they're like well let's capitalize on this and make his own thing and so he became more popular than the thing he's from yeah. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Detective Comics is DC Comics. Um, but specifically, this isn't actual DC Detective Comics. He was Oh, not... just detective-themed comics? Yeah, this was like detective shorts and detective stories, like um, like a Strange Tales Got or uh, Weird Tales or Strange... Uh, you know, all those novelizations and serials from back in the day. Um, gotcha. It's actually he I believe he predates detect like DC and Warner Brothers. Yeah. It's it's kind of unfortunate that Batman Begins is where like DC kind of ended up with seeing success for their movies cuz I think one of the one of the um things I've I read up on it like in preparing for this is like Marvel has a formula where like the movies are fun and they're well-written and, you know, they are able to tell good stories and, and DC just seems to be you know, like we talked about in the suicide squad episode, just banging this drum of, of dark and gritty. And it's like, I, I wish they had found success somewhere else. Maybe if, maybe if Batman and Robin had taken off, you know, we'd be living in a much different world. Uh, I mean, I think that trajectory was always going to pass because of the 90s being what they were. And you can look at, you know, The Shadow and Dick Tracy as the first um, the first two you know, movies in the early 90s with one being, uh, you know, 90 exactly. That kind of is like, oh, comic book movies, we can still do that. But again, it's like there's these eras like every 10 years they go back to it. It's just now we've been in comic book movies since 2005 onward mm -hmm. there has been comic movies comic book movies in the in the box office at least once a year if not you know every quarter <laughs> yeah uh, and i just looked it up the the shadow as a character predates dc as a company by four years oh, okay with its first print as the the character the shadow in 31 but its first um, appearance on radio, July 31st, 1930. Gotcha. Um, but they're all drawing from the same vein. Like looking at that, you could even say that Zorro is probably, is, is definitely older than um, Batman and DC. I mean, Batman is unabashedly just stealing Zorro. <laughs> right. 
the masked crusader. Yeah, I think I think for comic book movies hmm I think I think the playful tone and kind of acknowledging some of the camp in the original comic books like obviously aimed it at kids in the beginning. You yeah, know, I think acknowledging that can pay off huge for for a comic book movie and I think like that's some of the success we've seen in with Marvel and I think it also plays off in pays off in these two movies as well. You know, we'll get into it, but I I think one of these films took a a lighter tone more consistently and I I think it it worked for it. Yeah, there's there's something I'll bring up in the wrap up about both these films, but um I definitely think both of them were probably released in the wrong era. Like that's all I'll say because I want to expound on that point later. Um, yeah. It's definitely a timing thing because I feel if the shadow had like come out before, di- well, we're talking about the movies now and I don't want to do that. Just <laughs> um, So yeah, it seems like there's always been comic book movies throughout the history of film. I just looked up how old Zorro is and it's 1919 is the first publication of Zorro stories. So um, <laughs> yeah. the idea was that, was that as a comic book or is like, no, a... that was, I believe that was written tales and I don't know if Zorro got comics. I didn't look that far into the, my quick wiki of it. I, I, I think someone has published a Zorro comic at some point. <laughs> I mean, they did. They called it Batman though. Cause they didn't want to pay <laughs> licensing rights. Right. So, I mean, Hollywood has always been adapting comic book movies since there has been a screen to with which to use stuff. People act like today, oh, they don't support original stories or original stories are dead and you, you, you can't have that marketability. It's like they've always adapted things ever since the beginning. It's not changed. I got to wonder <laughs> if people back in the 30s and the 40s were complaining about Hollywood being out of ideas and just copying you know, <laughs> popular books when freaking gone with the wind comes out right or making plays into movies like sound of music and fiddler on the roof or... yeah i uh, was just just you know a bankrupt idea that brings nothing to the screen yeah it's it's that continual problem of like you know you hear nowadays like oh kids are so into their phones and then you go back into like ancient greece and it's just like oh i can't believe these youths like <laughs> yeah people, people like... love to complain I mean, at least kids today are into their phones and not into hardcore dr- intravenous druggies like they were in the 70s. <clears throat> <laughs> All right. We've we've strayed afar, but uh, you ready to talk about, about these two movies? Let's do it. All right. This episode's matchup is about big crime, the big city, and the handsome men who will save us. So grab your first editions of Fix Your Prosthetic Noses. Spray your Tommy gun wildly in the air. It's time for The Shadow versus Dick Tracy. So what was your experience with these movies before watching them for the podcast? I I believe I watched both of these on video when I was on vacation and Disney World back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Huh. Um, used to have, like, you, whenever you were staying on property, you could go to the Welcome Centers and they would have a selection of mostly Disney or Disney affiliated films that were, you know, appropriate uh, to watch. And so yeah. I watched uh, The Shadow, Dick Tracy. Uh, Hunt for Red October. It's also the first time I saw that. Uh, and a few other family friendly content. Nothing like Madonna in a sheer negligee. Well, I honestly didn't 
Like that that's one of those things like as a kid, like, yeah, obviously I saw her wearing that, but like I didn't it didn't register at all anything. <laughs> right. Not not in the same way it would now. Yeah. And this it's like, damn, she she's showing some titty. <laughs> yeah. I was like, um, I can't believe I watched this as a kid. <laughs> Right. I, I get that same thing when I go back to like James Bond movies. It's like, oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> yeah. And there's just like not... the, the innuendo that completely goes over your head that is not even like innuendo. It's just like in your face, really. <laughs> yeah. I just did not have the context to like file those memories away. It's like, oh, that was a weird thing. But uh, yeah, I had not, I had not seen either of these movies uh, before watching them yesterday but um it was a uh, i think i had seen like maybe five minutes of dick tracy somewhere hbo or something probably skinamax yeah um so besides being linked by their imdb scores uh these movies are also separated by one degree of separation uh warren Beatty was in the movie rules don't apply with alec baldwin there you go yeah i uh I tried to look for a more detailed connection, but you know, there, there are more steps that you could do that I think are more fun, but Hey, they just appeared in a movie together. I think <laughs> Alec Baldwin's part was a little minor in that film. Well, I, I mean, to... when you're in a Warren Betty film, anyone that isn't Warren Betty is minor. Yeah. I was surprised. I, I, I have definitely seen Warren Betty in like some other movie, but Bonnie and I could Clyde. not, I could not remember. I don't, I don't even know that it's that, but He's got the face of a leading man. I can't, I can't believe I like hadn't seen any of his major films before this. Or I, I would have thought he would have been more popular. Like I would have come across him before this. Well, I mean, that's kind of why I bring it up. His his ego was legendary in Hollywood to the point where he kind of burned all his bridges. Gotcha. Um, he could only star in the movies he also directed. Or produced and funded himself. Yeah, that was actually um, his ego cost. the. It was a film with, I think, Goldie Hawn. It was like hmm. just it should have been a simple rom-com, I think on a ship or something like that. And he insisted on reshooting everything with him, like directing it and like tripled the budget doing it because he basically filmed the movie over again. <laughs> was so, Goldie Hawn in another boat movie with like Kurt Russell or something? That's what I think. I think that's where they met. I might be wrong about it being on a boat and I might be confusing that too. Okay. But... So both of these movies got a perfectly adequate 6.1 on IMDb, but one of them must be better than the other. Let's find out right after this break. The Shadow is a 1994 film written by David Nope or Cop? Nope. I think cop, I would I would guess. Written by David and based on a character by Walter B. Gibson, who also shares a writing credit, and directed by Russell McClary. This movie stars Alec Baldwin, John Lorne, and Penelope Ann Miller. David Nope is best known for Jurassic Park, Mission Impossible, and <laughs> Spider-Man, the 2002 Raimi film. <laughs> Russell McCauley is best known for this, Highlander, Resident Evil Extinction, the third Resident Evil film, of which there are like eight, and the MTV Teen Wolf series. 
as well as a litany of music videos. Yeah, it seems like he... Style over substance. Hmm. Interesting. Do you know the evil that lurks in the hearts of men? No, how could you? Only the shadow does. The shadow couldn't possibly be Lamont Cranston, nephew of the chief of police and mysterious eligible bachelor. But what's this? A mysterious murder at the museum and a missing mummy from Manchuria? And Margot Lane's father is missing. Who is working on a top secret project? All these troubles are brewing in the Big Apple and it's up to the shadow to solve them. <laughs> That's possibly the only way I could think of summarizing <laughs> this movie. It's... it. It's kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. Because um, we open in Tibet. Yeah. In, in the, the opium, opium fields, fields of Tibet. Of Tibet. <laughs> sure. You know, nothing like some slightly racist Asian mysticism to kick off a movie. Um, but we... There, we don't spend a whole lot of time in Tibet because we get like a flying knife scene and then it's like, yeah, you get the point. All right, moving on. Text crawl years later. Yeah, that's like the strangest thing. But like the movie starts at obviously the beginning of this character's origin, but like it didn't need to at yeah. all. Like it feels like they're like, well, we got we got some movie to add to this movie. Let's add the movie to it. Yeah. And so it's- it gets like. It gets, you know, really, it's strange. Mm-hmm. Because, like, that that comes up, but not in any, like, meaningful way, sort of. But it also does, like, the main villain is Shere Khan, the, the, the last living descendant of Genghis Khan. Is yeah. It Shere? Uh, that sounds right. Isn't that the... Uh, it's a uh, Khan... Yeah. Shiwan Khan. Shiwan Khan. Shir Khan is from fucking the Jungle Book. Okay. Uh Shiwan Khan is the villain, and he's going after Lamont Cranston, played by Alec Guinness. Not Alec Guinness, Alec Baldwin. Another God. Alec. Yeah. <laughs> all those Alecs, you know, they all they all blend together. Um and he wants him to join him because, you know, he was like this legendary bandit warlord in the warlord era of China. Yeah, it kind of confused me, like, because when he meets him, he says, like, oh, no, 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 you're not, you know, Lamont Cranston, you're whatever name he was going as, like, un- in Tibet. And I was like, wait, it, but he is the same person. And I was, I thought, like, for some reason, my first thought was like, oh, the teacher possessed him and, and like <laughs> went back to America. I, I was just like, what the heck's going on? Because the name was not that memorable to me. And Yeah, I mean, I've completely forgotten the, the name that he went under in China. And it's like it, they don't explain that like after what happened in World War One, because Lamont Cranston is a World War One veteran. Mm-hmm. He disappeared in the Orient and like took on a persona of an a bandit warlord <laughs> that ran the opium trade in, in in China. With just a terrible wig. A terrible wig and terrible nails and like like I get that they're kind of making like evil, like he's supposed to be evil and greasy and ugly. Mm-hmm. And, and like all that. Um that those scenes honestly feel like reshoots after the movie is finished. 
Yeah. Or they or they started out there and we're just like, whoa, if we continue, we're going to go way over budget. Uh, just cut this stuff. Like we spent all the money on this one flying knife scene. <laughs> now we can't. A lot of that China stuff really reminds me of the amazing Eddie Murphy film, The Golden Child. Mm, I have not seen that one to the surprise of nobody, but it sure sounds like that would be a part of that movie based on the title alone. And I think, oh, you know what? Looking at Golden Child came out in 86, right? Uh, What if they got the dailies back from this first part and the producer's like, oh my God, you're just making the golden child stop. (laughs) And so that's why you have this, okay, now here's a text scroll. Yeah. Like, look, we we rented these eight foot by eight foot sound stages to replicate New York. And, you know, we need to move into those pretty quick. Um, This. uh, So. uh, I like parts of this movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I like you can tell that like Alec Baldwin was having a bit of fun with this. Like, yeah, he's got some whimsy, some charm. Like, honestly, I was thinking, like, did they consider him for Batman at any point? That's, because he yeah. would have made a good Batman of the era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, just replace uh, Michael Keaton, who I love, who does a great job in those two Batman films with Alec Baldwin. And it's like that that doesn't change the movie in any way. It's like that casting makes sense. Yeah. Definitely strong Batman vibes. Like I also was because they never bring up like what time period this is in. They never have like Tibet, China, you know, 1922 or whatever. They just say like, oh, seven years later. So I'm like, okay, is this like a modern kind of like Gotham look where it's like modern and old timey at the same time? Because they like. Obviously, it was New York. Like, I recognize the bridge that they fought on, but it's just kind of introduced with no date attached to it. So I'm like, oh, do they drive these cars, you know, like the old Batman cartoons because they look cool and they're, like, stylish? Well, again, I think the, the 90s Batman animated series was hearkening back to the Art Deco, the the 30s, and just just letting your mind be like, it's comic book time. Don't worry about when it takes place. Um, I was actually reading up a bit about the uh, the car that is used for the taxi in this, which is an 810 Cord. And Cord was a luxury car manufacturer back in the day that uh, eventually went under. But the Cord car was the inspiration for the original Batmobile. That makes sense, yeah. So... The very long hood kind of... And like. I just looked up, Looper is saying that... Um, Alec Baldwin was in consideration for Tim Burton's Batman, but it went to Michael Keaton instead. Yeah. So uh, a glimpse of what could have been. <laughs> yeah. I, I got the time period finally nailed down when they're like, it could be some kind of atom bomb. It's like, oh, that's catchy. I'm like, all right. So they're pre-actual atom bomb or well, atomic I mean- bomb. Maybe it's because I uh, obviously I've seen this film and then knowing when the shadow comes from that, like, obviously they're set in the 1930s. Like both mm-hmm. of these are set in the thirties, these uh, two films. Yeah. Um, I think that I feel that the, the shadow does a better job making you feel like this is actually like a living, breathing city. 
a little bit more. Whereas I'll get to my critique of Dick Tracy <laughs> when we talk about Dick Tracy, not necessarily right. critique, just thoughts on it. Um, the overall story though, like it definitely has that radio serial feel like, it feels like the shadow is barely in it except for a few key moments. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's a lot of like Lamont Cranston, you know, taking care of business and maybe that's just, you know, who the character was or, you know, they wanted Alec Baldwin to have more face time. Cause I mean, I, I could definitely see that. And I also don't think the face makeup that just turns him into Danny or Billy Baldwin was all that impressive. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering about that because they never like address why his appearance changes when he becomes the shadow. Like you're a character that can already turn invisible. Like, why do you also need to then disguise your face? I think that that's like, again maybe hearkening to something from the the radio serial that he's like making himself look like, or because he's dipping into the evil that lurks in his heart, it's like the evil personification of him mm-hmm. that he like pulls pulls towards but like that's never explained in the movie proper you just yeah. kind of left to think that um i'm i'm sure they cover it in in other you know shadow properties it just never gets brought up here yeah um does does the con not actually say that about his uh his appearance if he did i didn't catch it hmm. it must he have been very quick more than i would um yeah, I, I tend to watch the movies all with subtitles just so I don't, you know, miss any of the dialogue. But yeah, um, you know, I think this is a fun movie that completely wastes a lot of its supporting cast. It's got Peter Boyle, Ian McKellen and Tim Curry in it. And you don't spend any time with them, really. Like you got Tim Curry in his prime. This is only a few years after Clue. And you have him in like three scenes. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he steals those scenes that he's in. <laughs> and he's clearly yeah. like having fun with it. And I think that's something that's true for both of these films, that there's a character in them that is having way more fun than in everyone else in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. The, both of these movies just like, like absolutely packed with like big names or I, I don't, you know, my Hollywood history is weak enough that I don't know what their popularity was at the time. Like obviously um, Peter Boyle was, was Frankenstein's monster and young Frankenstein as just a, you know, he a luminary of old Hollywood. Like you'll recognize yeah. him if you ever see him. It's like, oh, that guy. Yeah, exactly. If you're a movie lover, that is. Um, yeah. But yeah, like there were a lot of times where it's like, man, this is a set that mm-hmm. I that I definitely like. I as a kid, I didn't get. I didn't feel that obviously. It's like all movies look like this. Um, right. Gorgeous it's- matte paintings in both of these movies, actually. Yeah, definitely. The the I mean, it stuck out to me like right away that scene on the bridge. It's like, oh, everything beyond that arch is just a painting. <laughs> yeah. I think that the the shadow was definitely hurt by photography and film stock being cheap. Because like it's called the shadow, and yet it's not dark at all. Everything's got this kind of washed out like TV color. Which makes sense because this guy was a, a music video director. Mm-hmm. And so he, like, maybe they were going for a bit of stylization to make it look more like one of those old serials. But, like, at a certain point, maybe they shouldn't have, like, 
I mean, I'd be interested to hear like a behind the scenes, like making of from like the director of photography and like the, the cinematographer on this film. Cause like, I want to hear what exactly was the reason for them to shoot it the way they did. Yeah. I mean, I, my uneducated guess, I mean, it's probably at the time pretty difficult to shoot like dark movie scenes. <laughs> like uh, I don't think that's, are... but I don't think that's true because this is 1994 that the shadow comes out. Isn't that the exact same year as heat? Um, was it? Heat, which we just did on the previous podcast. Go listen. Yeah, uh, 1995. So it's a, a year later they do Heat, which co- its colors aren't nearly as washed out. I mean, it does have that 90s film stock kind of grain to it that both these films actually had. But I would say the use of coloration and cinematography in a movie just a year later, Heat, was far superior. I mean, obviously Heat is a better film in general, but like the, it was effort was not put into the shadow to make similar color choices. Yeah. I guess they, they do play a little bit with the lighting. Like when he, you know, activates his shadow powers, like suddenly, you know, a shadow falls over his face or like when he hides in the alley and it just goes entirely black. So yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe that's not it. It was some other factor. And so that's why I kind of brought up that point in the opening discussion, like this film, the shadow made today could be made so much better, easier, because the technology needed to do those those shadows and those post FX is so much cheaper and easier to do that you mm-hmm. could, like, if if they wanted Corridor Digital to just go through and make this a darker looking film and have <laughs> shadows play a lot more, a lot easier. Yeah. Or... or- use uh use hdr for some of this like yeah it's a, you know like, the the tech is there to have to have good darks um one of the things i i wrote down that i would change in this movie is i think like get rid of the beginning tibet scenes like entirely like forget that and you know i they talk about like what a mysterious public figure the shadow is, but like the mystery for the viewer is kind of gone because like, you know, Alec Baldwin is the shadow right away. I mean, I I mean, I also, I don't think that matters as much knowing that that guy is the shadow. I mean, obviously Alec Baldwin is the shadow. He's the star of the movie. mm -hmm. Um, But but I do, I do agree with you. It's like um, when you look at uh, Batman, the the Tim Burton Batman 1989, um, they swerve with you where that opening scene, you think it's going to be Batman's origin story of his parents getting shot. No, it's just a similar thing. And Batman stops the crime, but like they don't spell it out for you that he did that because oh, my parents were killed. You know, it's on. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I, it has a lot more, um, a lot more uh, respect for the viewer. Uh, the, the Batman film than this film and even other subsequent superhero films. Yeah. I, I would have liked to see a movie where maybe we follow Alex Baldwin's character, you know, as like maybe he's an agent of the shadow, you know, cause he has this, this interesting like network of different people with different specialties. And I think it could have been cool to have a movie that kind of holds back on that reveal for a little while. I think that would have been an interesting take on it. Um, also like, there's also like a weird tone shift about an hour in, 
um and it starts with um where Lamont and Margot are in the room together like kind of having a, a fun banter back and forth and it's like okay where did this like kind of genuinely funny comedy come from and then and then they follow up making just like a casual pun as some dude throws himself off the Empire State Building. There's, there's a lot of that that happens like someone says something that is a pun for something serious that happens behind them or adjacent to them. And yeah. then there's like a strange obliviousness. Um, <laughs> there's a scene where uh, Lamont Cranston and uh, Margot Lane are talking in the middle of the street as someone is furiously like, get out of the street, get out of the street, <laughs> right behind. And it's like, huh? There's like, yeah. this movie kind of wants to be real, but also a comic book at the same time. It, it, it's tonal shift that it doesn't know how to handle. Um, and it sometimes works in some scenes like where um, the con, he takes a cab and the cabbie is like tallying out where, you know, he dropped him off and he's like, you're making a record of this. <laughs> and then, so he uses his powers to make him drive into a thing is like, must be my lucky day as he plows head first <laughs> into a fuel truck and explodes. Right. And like that kind of works like that weird, creepy surrealism. Like this is the power that these guys have that they don't, that they either choose to use or not use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I think like later now we're kind of spoiled for it in the now having these Marvel movies that do blend like seriousness and comedy, I think, well. And to a know, point, I think some do it better than others. Mm-hmm, definitely. But yeah, I, I think maybe that's where this movie was trying to go. And I think they had some really funny people in there. Um, you know, Penelope Ann Miller, I think does really well, like playing against Alec Baldwin who obviously has some comedy chops, um, C30 rock. Or but, Beetlejuice, um, the film that he did right before, you know, earlier than this. Sure, yeah. And and I, I wish they better knew how to, like, utilize that stuff. But, hey, you know, what are you going to do? It's we're. I think we're in a better place now, so. I think this, you know, again, going back to kind of like the photography and the production of this, it felt cheap. Mm-hmm. it felt really like yeah they blew their budget on that tibet stuff <laughs> and they had to tone it down because that's like the most we get from that flying dagger that like animates the face which honestly still kind of holds up i mean you can tell it's fake but it's not like it's like got that level of fake that you're like oh i'm fine with this yeah it's done really well like there's a good blend of of practical in there I, I think a lot of the special effects still hold up. Like maybe the one where he's in the water and kind of like shimmers out of his invisibility, like would look better now. But you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of it is still pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Um, interestingly enough, apparently I looked uh, briefly and it's, I remember reading about this pre- previously because I like the concept of the shadow. Like mm-hmm. this kind of like dark avenging, like, you know, criminal that fights crime, and but doesn't have like a code, like right. nothing so as ostentatious or chivalrous as that. It's just like, nah, I, I kill the bad people and I make uh, and create a network of informers to help me continue to fight that. It's like, that's very 1930s serial, like adventure serial um, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like there are flashes of what this property came from in this movie that 
I wish there was more of, and I wish like having an overarching plot, I just don't think was the strength of this movie. Yeah. Especially cause they kind of give up. They tell you what the plot's going to be halfway through. Now I'm, re- I can't remember if I ever talked about this on the podcast or not when we were recording, but they give up the plot halfway through and it's kind of like, okay, I see where the, where the rest of the dots connect. Um, I also felt felt like the ending was super rushed. Yeah. Um, but know, again, we could, it, we could it speculate feels, on why that is, but I think that they were hoping to turn this into a series to like rival Batman. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do like the 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 end part where like they've lobotom like they've done a little bit of brain surgery on the con <laughs> to remove the part of his brain that gives him his psychic powers it's like oh that's a clever way to defeat to defeat him and just put him Mm -hmm. in a mental institute with a guy guys yelling he's a con like (laughs) clearly he's crazy yeah um i i think the third act had like like there was setup and payoff with the knife like Mm -hmm. which is strangely like a central thing in this movie because it just seems so kind of offhand in the first act like then you realize like it's coming back well, I got to wonder, like, I would love to see David Cope's, like, original screenplay to see, like, where it goes. Because it was probably a little more expansive and mm-hmm. probably had a little more through line. Um, yeah. Because, like, the fact that they dropped that, the the whole, his whole training in Tibet and, like, just do a text crawl <laughs> instead <laughs> of the training montage, like, I feel like we're going to get. Yeah. Also, um, I just realized the first act of Batman Begins kind of steals this movie's first act. Yep, yep. I definitely found some things where people were like, yeah, hey, we get it. Um, people involved in Batman Begins were like, yeah, we kind of ripped it off. Wait, really? Yeah. Uh, huh. I think it was in the IMDb trivia section for the Shadow Earth. No, it, like the referenced in section. But um, yeah, the, the third act, like they kind of have this thing where like, suddenly the shadow like powers up kind of out of nowhere. It's just like suddenly he understands the knife and suddenly he can blow, you know, 20 mirrors out. And also that whole scene where there's like, there's this, I actually kind of liked it. This whole, like, was it in the the mind or was it in the reality? Mm, Yeah. Uh, So like (laughs) that very, not that very committal answer there. Um, uh, I'll be honest. I I was I had it on on my TV and I had started playing a video game uh, yeah. because I was like, oh, this isn't holding my attention. Um, right. Uh, so I I kind of didn't see the setup to the the Hall of Mirrors, but it's like that's Enter the Dragon. He's just copying Enter the Dragon right here. <laughs> yeah, you know, a little pinch of this, a little pinch of that, borrowed inspiration. Um, I would in my in my rewrite, which. You know, I'm sure I'll, I have all the time in the world to complete now, but, um, I would have liked to see like some, maybe some involvement with, um, Margot's character. Cause like, she's like a latent psychic and, you know, maybe they could have like powered up together or something to like defeat the con, but there's yeah. a lot of stuff that they just kind of breeze past, like that would get, I think more, more lip service in a modern superhero movie like what are the basis of his powers like where does this come from what does margo being psychic have to do with it all like what are the rules of the knife you know 
I think a lot of that stuff goes back to the original radio serials. Uh, Margot Lane, I believe, is his his girl Friday. Like that is mm. that is a connection. She is a recurring character and love interest of the of Lamont Cranston that has that connection with him. I believe, or yeah. that that was added in like eighties reboots that were in DC Comics of the Shadow. Um, I think yeah, like today. We see a little bit of it, like when he psychically reaches out to her and like calls her to rescue him. And the fact that she can read his mind and then he's like, <laughs> well, psychically speaking, I'm well endowed. <laughs> yeah. So it's I'm like, sure you are like, honestly, the shadow would be a great character to use like as a psychological like angle more so again, yeah. like what Batman begins is basically a better version of the shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, with with a little bit of the magic taken out of it, but right. But there's still a little bit of that with the the fear toxin that uh, Crane yeah. develops. So like, I think they true. Like a, a rewrite of this, kind of like what you're saying, is maybe lean into that whole like psychic like mind powers thing. Like he, he's not actually invisible; he is using his psychic powers to make himself invisible. Yeah. Like it's kind of, have you ever seen that optical illusion where, um, like you look at two dots and move it towards your face and the one in your periphery, like fades out. Yeah. Stuff like that. Or like more of the, him convincing people of like, that's the exit right there and (laughs) flies out the window. Mm -hmm. Tim Curry frothing at the mouth. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like a Mysterio sort of vibe to that, that part of his power. Yeah, like now that we've visualized something like Mysterio, like that's what the shadow should do. The shadow mm-hmm. should be like the scarecrow Mysterio figure who like drives people insane with their own fears. Yeah. I I want to I want a shadow reboot now. <laughs> like... So, and the other thing that I would have liked, you know, from a a reboot of this, like honestly, th- if this was animated or if this was like a CG like uh, I'll I'll bring this up uh, in the Dick Tracy as well. Um, that Sin City is the perfect realization of what these movies kind of both wanted to be. Yeah, and this felt the shadow felt uh, closer to the spirit, which is not a good movie, um, <laughs> than than Dick Tracy did. Yeah, I uh, I definitely thought that I confused the shadow and the spirit for a while while we were in the lead up to this. <laughs> podcast i was like is that the that shitty sin city ripoff kind of thing is it a ripoff or is it an homage because frank miller was <laughs> <laughs> um but i believe will eisner who did the spirit was influenced from things like the shadow like that's where he was drawing his inspiration from yeah um but i think that visually speaking that the shadow just lacks panache like the the coolest part of the shadow is the scene on the bridge on brooklyn bridge i believe um Mm -hmm. where you see him you know like without his guns and he's fighting and using his invisibility powers then you see get that reveal of him um but like it never lives up to that scene the rest of the movie yeah I will give a shout out to the costuming in both these films. They were on point. I, I didn't not think these people were in the 30s the whole time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, 
lots of, lots of good aspects. I think, you know, could have, could have used maybe another, another pass in the end, but I think another 20 million could have helped make this movie a little bit better. Yeah. But you're, you're only getting those comic book budgets now where I think this may have been more of a, that kind of makes me curious who has the rights to the shadow right now. Dive into that murky morass of rights ownership. Right. So some holding company that's like three shells deep and so Sam Raimi was supposed to make a shadow movie and that's why he has that's why it's um uh uh the guy with the masks that's why uh what was that Sam Raimi did um that movie that has Liam Neeson wearing masks um Shadow Man isn't it Shadow Man <laughs> is that it uh i'm not sure um oh right sam raimi's tap to do the uh the doctor strange movie uh dark man dark man thank you yes dark man comes from like a failed sam raimi shadow <laughs> i believe oh, i'll have to check it out i i haven't i haven't heard much about it but that yeah, that was 1990, so that predates this movie. Uh, I think that that fell through originally. Um, Strange. Oh, there was a Dark Man two in '95. I don't think he did any of those. Uh, he did not. Probably associated with him because he made the first one, but. Yep, he had pursued to secure the rights to both The Shadow and Batman to create his own and failed. So he's like, fine, I'll make The Shadow and Batman as one with Darkman. Hmm. So you already had kind of a muddled water, ver- muddy water version of The Shadow existing four years previously with Darkman. Very interesting. <laughs> so the yeah, plot thickens. Uh, it looks right. like he's been trying to adapt the shadow since, but the last news was like in 07. So I nah. assume that that's dead. Uh, wasn't able to find who owns the rights because I didn't look that hard. Uh, <laughs> but it's yeah. out there. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're just sitting on it. Although I think he's he appears in comic books now. I think it's in DC. He's part of a like the Dark Justice League, maybe. Hmm. See the shadow. Yeah, the rights are just kind of all muddy and no one big enough owns them to do anything with them. Gotcha. I feel like we should also mention that the shadow has like a theme song at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know if, if you that started playing. If you stuck around for the credits, but it's it's interesting. It's very kind of a James Bondish sort of vibe to it. Yeah, again, they were pushing real hard to turn it into a motion picture franchise. Yeah, but I, I think we've talked enough about the shadow at this point. I think so. Uh, let me just check if I had anything else here. Oh yeah, Penelope Ann Miller has uh, aged like fine wine. Yeah, I saw a picture on her IMDb. It's like, good on you. <laughs> yeah, she uh she was in the uh, Riverdale series most recently, I believe. Who was she on the Riverdale? I started watching that trash fire. Uh, from the pictures I saw, she was a, a lawyer. I uh, didn't get far enough into that trash fire. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's those are our thoughts on The Shadow. Uh, 
Join us again after the break and we'll talk about some Dick Tracy. Uh, welcome back. Uh, Dick Tracy is a 1990 movie written by Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. based on characters by Chester Gould and directed by Warren Beatty. Batty? Beatty? Beatty, okay. This movie stars Warren Beatty, Madonna, and Al Pacino. Uh, writing duo Jim Cash and Jack Epps Jr. are best known for to- Turner and Hooch, Anaconda, and Top Gun. Warren Beatty is best known for his combination acting directing in this movie, uh, Heaven Can Wait and Reds, which he won an Academy Award for, as well as his lead role in Bonnie and Clyde. Detective Dick Tracy is hot on the trail of notorious gangster Big Boy after the killing of rival gangster Lips Manless. However, Big Boy knows how to play the game and Dick Tracy is stymied at every turn by red tape and a lack of evidence. However, Tracy sees a chance to get the eyewitness he needs in the form of Breathless Mahoney, Big Boy's indentured girlfriend and singer at his club, but Breathless isn't exactly being cooperative. Couple this with relationship troubles, a plucky orphan, and Big Boy quickly amassing power in the underworld, and Dick Tracy has his work cut out for him. So, again, I'm going to bring up the the thing I brought up just recently in the the, the shadow. Dick Tracy would have been, because they're trying to do that primary colors, and the blocking is very much like, comic strip blocking which i really appreciated like you can tell like this is taking influence and using those kind of like as storyboard panels yeah Um, definitely it would have benefited from better technology to create something like sin city sin city is the realization of what dick tracy wanted to do in 1990 yeah also uh 300 was started as a graphic novel and you can you can put like frames from that movie next to panels from the graphic novel and it's like the same and i don't know if dick tracy the comic strips and the comics uh you can do that for the movie however Mm -hmm. at least the coloration the blocking the the shot composition is all very comic panel frames yeah Um, it's, it's unmistakable what they're going for so there's definitely like clear vision going on uh which is enjoyable Something that, like, honestly, like, bugged me throughout is, like, how disgusting all the mobsters look. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that is taken basically directly from the comic. I think the um, jarring part, though, is because not everyone has those kind of exaggerated features. That mm-hmm. it, ju- it just looks... And then the, the actual makeup work is well done. <laughs> like, it would have yeah. been better with again, some like CG elements or like maybe even going like um, who framed Roger rabbit with it, where they're like just straighter lines and harder lines. But again, Mm -hmm. that's, you know, a few years later. Um, I I think that there's definitely a strong sense of style in this film. Yeah. And like down to very small details, like, you know, the first people we see die off like three minutes into the movie, but it's some of like the most complex prosthetics. And then we get, you know, I, I still like uh, those prosthetics just they bug me. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, I think this would have been better as like a Sin City style movie today because you're not the technology just wasn't there in 1990 to make that not seem uncanny valley like oh that's oh no i don't like that 
like the that one mobster that had like like a tiny face and all that mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> oh that no i don't like that <laughs> yeah yeah it, i mean they went for it and i personally like i i really enjoyed it and i you know I also enjoyed going down the IMDb and just being like, oh, holy shit, that's Dustin Hoffman? No way. That was Dustin Hoffman. I was like, yeah. who is that? Who is that? Who is that? He plays uh, Mumbles, yeah. yeah. Um, the other the other casting I wrote down here, do you know who uh, 88 Keys is played by? Yeah, Manny Packin. Yeah, uh, Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride. Yeah, that was that's one that comes out like, oh, now I know who that is. Like, first few scenes with him, it's like, oh, they... What did they? Why did they shave his hair so weird? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. "Oh, it's Manny Pacquiao." Yeah, Al Pacino, obviously, just unmistakable, just Al Pacinoing all over the place. I mean, he is the actor that I feel is having the most fun with this movie. Yeah, I I think the one the one thing that detracted from this movie for me is I just wasn't in a mood for Al Pacino, and uh, this is You're maximum Al Pacino. Al Pacino. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah i mean you know his he's a he's a good casting choice for that character you know just this time i was just like all right mm, to turn the volume down a little bit my problem with the the rest of the cast is they're playing in a very serious grounded version of this for like the main cast i'm talking about not the supporting cast that is like Mm -hmm. the mobsters and the prosthetics and all that they're playing in this like grounded like man who's caught between his job and his love story with uh and then like oh this non non-standard family that we're creating here Mm -hmm. over an indeterminate amount of time yeah um like their scenes are like the 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 dick tracy um tess uh true heart and breathless mahoney scenes are all very like classic noir real in a sense, like this is a real movie, whereas the the big boy scenes are like, I'm going to be as loud as possible because she had a great ass. Um, yeah. And then his weird character tick of like throwing in those like quotes. Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, Plato, yeah. Nietzsche. <laughs> uh, those are just yeah. the four he throws out. I'm like, what? Like, was that a thing that the character did back in the, the comic strips? Right. Um, also, I, I couldn't tell, like, was Dick Tracy originally supposed to be, like, an upstanding by-the-book cop? And, that like, is that the original Dick Tracy? Because in this, it seems like he was not above planting evidence and, like, twisting the <laughs> the facts and misrepresenting things. Like, Yeah, it's a real, like, ends-justify-the-means sort of uh, attitude. I did appreciate them being like, you know, his other cops being like, you can't do this. Like, this isn't going to stick. I don't think Warren Betty was the right choice to play Dick Tracy. Hmm. I, I think he was okay. But again, his acting, he felt more like he was acting in a normal film rather than this comic book Kodachrome movie. Yeah. Um. I think it was definitely hurt without the ability to post to FX a lot of pri- like brighten up these primary colors. Cause like both these movies have great posters, primary posters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The Dick Tracy poster is mm, Trey. And they, and they, and he even gets to do that in the movie 
uh, at a certain point. Um, I thought that scene was definitely him like, oh, I remember when I was shut up in that car and in uh, Bonnie and Clyde, I'm going to be the one shooting it. I get my revenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just didn't think his features kind of fit, fit the square jawed Dick Tracy stereotype I have in my head. Yeah. I, I mean, I got to say for me, it like really worked, but I mean, maybe that's just a inexperience with Warren Beatty and like me seeing him for the first time here. I don't know, but it, um, it did work for me, especially like his, you know, kind of leading man face. I'm not saying that that Warren Beatty is not a leading man, but his ver like his Dick Tracy as portrayed and shot in the movie Dick Tracy didn't necessarily fit some of the more fantastical stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciated having a little bit of grounding. I I feel like if every character was, you know, Al Pacino, like the movie would have been a lot harder to watch. I'm not saying again, you're misinterpreting what I'm saying. I'm not talking the character's actions. I'm talking the actual appearance. Hmm. And okay. I think, I think that that um, it doesn't necessarily work for me in the movie that they have kind of going. Right. What with the gangsters having such crazy faces to show how evil and duplicitous they are, perfectly fine with that. But to not have the heroes have similar pastes, oh, apparently the the... Dick Tracy did crossovers with the spirit as well. So, you know, again, comic book. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to go back to the, the critique I had that this movie could have been done better today with technology that we have today that wasn't necessarily available or cheaply available to them. Yeah. And yeah, I'm, I'm not saying you're, you're wrong for, for believing that I, but I also think that, um, that contrast is probably judging by how dedicated they were to preserving the aesthetic in other aspects of the movie. I think in the comics, Dick Tracy is just drawn like a normal person. And all the, you know, all the villains are turned up to 11. Mm, there's definitely some characterization going on. There's a style to the comics that is true of the times that it's stylization. It'd be like, trying to make Batman look real. So like, had they not styled the gangsters the same way, I probably wouldn't be as like, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like the same movie, the, the, the Trish and Dick Tracy scenes, as opposed to the, the cops and criminals scenes. Yeah. That's kind of the point I'm getting at. And it's just, I was just trying to clarify that literally it's a visual representation that I'm talking about, not an actual acting representation. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I think the acting does also reflect the amount of prosthetics they were under. Sure. You know, I, I think Warren Beatty plays it plays it pretty straight. Um, like you said, all all the scenes with the humans, the quote, quote humans. <laughs> wow, criminals aren't human now. Fucking hot take there. <laughs> yeah. Um. Again, I think since we've had better stylized comic adaptations in the present and more contemporaneous that it mm-hmm. is, it is harder to go back to these when they're limited by 
you know, what prosthetics can we do? What actual costuming and set design can we do? What cars can we wrangle? Because like they do a very good job. Like this felt very much like a collection of comic strips in Dick Tracy, which I think is fine, but it made the movie feel extremely long. Hmm. Like towards the yeah. end, I'm like, just get a finish, please. <laughs> now we'll be done. Yeah, there's I, kind of a question of like, is you know, is this the third act? Is this you know, without looking at at you know, the timeline and seeing, oh, I got 25 minutes left. Is like, yeah, there's a lot of they preserve a mystery in the story. I think that um, the shadow doesn't because the shadow, like we said, spells it out very clearly, like what the what the third act is going to be it's you know this showdown so the guy doesn't blow up the world <laughs> but yeah Comic dick tracy is kind of improper stakes <laughs> yeah this movie it's, it's much more difficult to say like oh you know it this is this is where it's going to end this will be the the final act yeah the breathless mahoney played very well by Madonna, actually, mm-hmm. as this very classic arch femme fatale that's like, you know, doing the 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 seductive sensual side of you know uh, women, whereas you know Tris uh, Trueheart is the the the, <laughs> the girl Friday, the you know gonna gonna be there for you. Um, I didn't feel like any real, like he's going to leave Triss for her. Yeah. Like it felt like she was way coming on to him, <laughs> like as a means to an end. And he was kind of like, I- I- I'm going to be the detective. Like, Oh God, I'm only human. <laughs> yeah. It's actually Tess, but yeah. it's funny that you call her Triss because Tess and breathless are the Triss and Yennefer of this movie. <laughs> Don't at me. <laughs> Toss a coin to your Detective of Valley of City. Oh. Because Tess is this very, like, independent, like, you know, I love you and I've also got my own thing going on where Yennefer is, like... I didn't er, feel sorry, that agency. <laughs> where breath- is Yennefer? <laughs> where is Breathless? Yennethless is, like, I've got my, you know, you know, maybe more once we realize what breathless is capable of at the end but you know it's like hey i've got my plans and if you want to tag along for the ride like so be it or actually more like please tag along for the ride i need you but i never i never felt that whole like join me you know do this kind of thing from her like and that he was gonna like i don't know if it's some world building or pace like i never felt rushed or hurried it definitely felt like this was Saturday cartoon strips that I was like, there's a collection of scenes for this plot line. There's a collection of scenes for this plot line. There's Mm -hmm. this, 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 and this, and there's the overarching plot line that you get in like a monthly special. That's Mm -hmm. kind of what the, the structure of this film felt like to me. Like it's, it's more of like a collection of TV episodes with a larger arc maybe but not even like tv like maybe radio serial again harkening back to the radio serials that this was so if that's intentional they did it but like 
I guess I'm at a point because I'm consuming a whole bunch of media in this fucking quarantine <laughs> where I, I just want something to be a little more transformative from yeah. one one medium to the other. Like I just watched um, Altered Carbon Resleeved and it was like a, like a CGI anime version of Altered Carbon that is canonical hmm. to the show they have going on, but it did nothing with it. Yeah. So don't watch that. It's a waste of your time and and does nothing. So you're saying like, hey, if you're going to be a movie, be a movie. Don't be, you know, serials stretched into a movie. Yeah. And I think that that's the, you know, that is also probably a fault of the source material they're adapting is that maybe at the time it was really hard to come by and find collected Dick Tracy works or, you know, the actual Dick Tracy comics of the time just had more of that issue to issue feel than what we have now, which is there's an issue to issue, but usually there's a plot line and a plot thread to those issues. Yeah. They're, they're organized into like collections. It's like you have your major arc or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think it is probably an issue personally with me that I, and the the media that we have now has an overarching narrative mm-hmm. and the structure is inherently different today than it was when Dick Tracy and the shadow were originally written. However, when you adapted into film in the nineties, even in the nineties, there was just the way stories and screenplays were written. Like this wasn't a poorly written story or screenplay, but it definitely felt like, something that a modern sensibility cannot easily get into. Mm, Yeah. It's yeah. Remake this movie too. Just remake them all. I don't care what I've said in the past about Hollywood being out of ideas. Just remake these two movies. But I I don't necessarily, I do. I think I agree with you watching them now that Dick Tracy is the better film overall Mm -hmm. Um, to spoil the, the summation, but I think (laughs) we're going to change the summation a bit. Um, with this episode at least um, that it was a well done film that had it been made maybe seven years later would have had better film stock to use and better you know the other thing that this could be a problem of is the digital transition that we watched was really low quality and so that grain effect and those washed out colors were in greater detail then they should like were worse off than had it been properly transitioned to digital. Sure. Yeah. But it's impossible to tell because the only versions I've seen have been VHS copies. <laughs> right. So it's like, yeah, that looks about VHS quality. <laughs> um, um, the ending in this movie also like, I think is good, but also like came out of nowhere. I was cause like in this world of like, tiny face and prune face and it's like okay why would this person with no face be wearing a mask like i have to assume that's just what his face is also that no face mask really creepy like it is unintentionally creepy (laughs) yeah yeah it's but i was like wait why are you taking off his like yeah that did not occur to me that like this is a face that's removable (laughs) Yeah, again, so uh, that's partially, like, a problem with the the direction. Like, they didn't make it because you've seen the prosthetics that they were doing for the other characters. Why wouldn't this be a faceless person? Right. 
And yeah, I, I now it like now I kind of want to go back and rewatch it, knowing that Breathless is faceless. Spoilers for a twenty the, the year old movie. <laughs> yeah. Um. But yeah, I, uh, like. Yeah, I want to go check it out again, and that's you know not something I felt with the shadow, but um. Also, towards the end, when uh, Big Boy has Test tied up to the gear, yeah. and he he says, you know, can't you see that I love you? And she gives that enormous eye roll. That was the funniest fucking thing I've seen in this movie. <laughs> oh, His I, talks a lot. I was cackling at like 3.30 in the morning watching that. Yeah, I definitely think this movie takes itself a little less seriously overall than The Shadow does. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's probably the better adaptation of a 30s serial because I definitely got like the... The two-fisted tails, you know, guy fighting and punching and, you know, using your wits and, like, the fantastical technology that is a wrist radio. Um, mm-hmm. there, there were good scenes and bad scenes in this. And, I, man, I, I, the, the thing that just jumped out to me for both these films was the film stock quality and the cinematography would be so better today with modern lighting and camera and post uh, processing and post editing. Yeah. Because how much better would this be if that yellow coat of his popped and the, those green right. and red and blue cars were just like bright and all the, you know, bright off the screen, like they've been colored with a, a, a highlighter kind of color, which is, I think what they were going for. Yeah. But instead you get like pastels. Mm hmm. And like a weird texture to that trench coat where it seemed like it was very light. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be not... surprised if like the, the Dick Tracy trench coat was extremely light, actually, because they're filming probably under really bright lights to get these colors to pop. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But yeah, didn't didn't have the weight that I would have expected from an actual like piece of clothing. But, yeah. you know, minor gripe. So. I mean, uh, I think everyone does a, a fine job with the roles uh, that they have. Um, I would say that, you know, if we were to do a modern re- remake of this, the women would have a little bit more agency and exist outside of the men. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, breathless. I, I, think, I think Tess gets a little bit of that. Um... Uh, her whole thing is, I want Tracy to settle down with me. Like, that's that's not necessarily what I'm looking for in like a strong female character. She very much is the damsel in distress in the last act. And while she's rolling her eyes at it, that's like, just because you look at the camera or give a knowing wink to the camera, doesn't mean you're not engaging in it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think she starts off a lot stronger than she ends off with a little bit more agency within her emotions and character. But like, you know, Tracy just foisting the the kid off on her, mm-hmm. like, in a very casual, like, well, you'll look after the kid, right? Obviously. <laughs> yeah, that, to, it, to me, it struck me as, like, like, she's very vocal about, about what she wants and, I think, who she is. And I think she does it out of, like, you know, mutual respect in a relationship. Like, she knows what dick tracy's job demands of him and and she's willing to meet him halfway you know when he is also willing to meet her you know 
there's there's multiple interpretations and I don't think either of them are the be all end all. If you want to see a better cop and wife uh interaction, watch the listen to the previous episode and watch Heat. <laughs> yeah. Also starring Al Pacino. <laughs> um Yeah. I doing I, his Al Pacino thing. I, I definitely think that this is uh the better of the two films. Uh, so anyway, we'll we'll go on to final thoughts and <laughs> You'll probably just belabor the point that I've been belaboring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the my one last thing. Uh, there's I happened to pause on one of the newspapers, and one of the headlines is "Taken for Chipmunk News Worker Shot." <laughs> <laughs> so, some good some good incidental writing there. But yeah, we'll be right back uh, with final thoughts. Welcome back. Uh, I mean, we've we've talked a little bit. Well, we've talked explicitly about which <laughs> movie we preferred. Um, it's Dick Tracy for me. I, I think it is for you as well. I think it's not that I prefer Dick Tracy. It's that it is, it is the actual better film in a sense that like it's more confidently done, more co- coherent and, and clear what the story is. But I don't think either of these films are great i have a a special place in my heart for the art deco style of the shadow more than i do the comic book styling of dick tracy Mm -hmm. and that's just more of personal preference if i could i would live in an art deco inspired house (laughs) with art deco inspired furniture and art deco inspired clothing i would have liked to see it today made in like the style that they have for speed racer honestly that kind of bright popping off the screen colors would really benefit the style they were trying to go for in 1990 yeah yeah it um it would take a lot from from modern movie production techniques especially post effects and um maybe madonna be up for it i don't know (laughs) like dick tracy is kind of in this like um cohort of of comics like with like green hornet which we've seen a movie version of and and the spirit which we've seen a movie version of and so dick tracy gets associated with these other movies and i maybe i didn't see spirit or green hornet but i heard they were both terrible um but you know maybe it's time for another dick tracy to get a a modern whack at it Whack um, that whack at the dick. Yeah. <laughs> I I tried so hard to not make a dick joke in my summary of Dick Tracy. <laughs> oh, but here we are. Um yeah, but I think like the, both these movies are rated 6.1s on IMDb. Like they're not they're not going to be fantastic. They're not up in the, you know, the 8s and 9s which are kind of the creme de la creme. So Yeah, they're they're fun uh summer blockbusters i i assume the shadow also came out in the summer but that's a that's a bold assumption to make there yeah um, uh first of july 94 so yeah but I think, some, I, something we found during the break is that uh dick tracy was actually going up against days of thunder uh he was gonna in, that, that in the same summer yeah 
yeah, they're not they're not well regarded as as great movies, but I I think Dick Tracy definitely out outshines the, the shadow. No pun intended. <laughs> the dick is brighter than the shadow. Got it. Mm. Nailed it. Getting all our innuendos in in the last few minutes. Some highbrow stuff going on. Yeah. Come, that's why you come to the Match Cut Podcast <laughs> for our in-depth analysis and dick jokes. Yeah. Stay till the end when we've run out of things to talk about and reach for the low-hanging fruit. Um, no pun intended. I think that Dick Tracy just has a slower pace, so it's harder for me to enjoy the film whereas the shadow just had a brisker pace which was kind of the detriment but at least it's over quicker i guess yeah i don't know like because i think sensibilities and the language of cinema is constantly evolving and changing i mean hot take there but <laughs> they both these films are harder to watch now than they were back then yeah which is not true of all films but there is the Dick Tracy is paced very differently than modern films. Yeah. Dick Tracy kind of reminds me of Chinatown. Like, obviously they both have a, a noir aesthetic, but for me, like Dick Tracy's pacing, I found more exciting where it's kind of like, it's this ride that they're kind of like pulling you along with, like, you know, as much as the characters um, and you're kind of like, finding out what's going on it's it's the same kind of mm, actually no i was gonna say it's the same kind of like martin scorsese day in the life stuff but um like the irishman or uh um what's another mobster movie he's done the departed goodfellas casino goodfellas is the one i was thinking of where but but those tend to cover like a lifetime of experience where Chinatown and and Dick Tracy I think cover like you know one case so I I've I found the pacing of Dick Tracy to be make make it an enjoyable watch and it also helps that it's not uh three and a half hours like The Irishman yeah I just it to me Dick Tracy felt way longer than it than it was and it it definitely dragged in the finale hmm. Yeah, I mean, but if you're going to watch either of them, I would say watch Dick Tracy. Um, if it shows up or if it's available to you, I probably wouldn't seek either of these films out again. Yeah, I would I would give Dick Tracy another another watch, you know, maybe in a month or two to uh, with with the knowledge that um, Breathless is uh, the blank. Yeah, did you did you have anything you wanted to add? I I feel like that that summarizes our thoughts uh pretty well. I think we we did it. There's a lot of dead air in this because I think these you know with these lower rated films as kind of a, a critique that I noticed, it becomes harder to talk about like substance of filmmaking because they're just not good overall. And me having watched these now a few times, uh probably like even though those memories are the old memories that it just they don't hold up for me and don't necessitate repeat viewings yeah i mean i'm obviously coming at it from a different perspective like this was you know both movies were super fresh for me uh this time around 
but I, I do get what you're saying. Um, it's kind of like, I, I feel like these movies, especially the way, like you said, filmmaking sensibilities have changed. Like it looking at them now, it's like, yeah, those check the boxes. Those are, those are movies and yeah. <laughs> boy, they sure were. But yeah, I, I think they're, but also like they are, they are captivating stories. Like we both, you know, have, have thought of ways to expand on them. Like there is, there is a seed there of, of something like truly interesting or something that resonates with us. It's just maybe, you know, we're used to a different technique in movie making that these aren't, these aren't hitting, you know, us filthy millennials who were, you know, one year old when Dick Tracy came out. Yeah. Yeah. We were, or zero as <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. But yeah. I, I would say, you know, give Dick Tracy a watch, see if, see if that's something you're interested in. And I don't, I, I don't know if there's any other like uh video media that tra- Dick Tracy has appeared in a TV show or, I mean, probably from back in the day. Yeah. You know, that can be our, our weekend homework track down, <laughs> track down presumably an old Dick Tracy TV show. Man, I, I, I totally don't have any time to do that. I'm so <laughs> busy. What with the Rona and all <laughs> super packed. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, we're reachable online. If, if you, need someone to talk to i don't know like you get you know day 47 of quarantine when you're reaching out to brands on twitter you know think of us and our hot movie takes <laughs> yeah we've got some uh we've got some other unmatched episodes coming out we got a couple movies in mind um and then we'll be back with a another full episode next month where in honor of, of 420, we will be looking at Harold and Kumar go to White Castle versus Super Troopers. We're going to Mexico! <laughs> you boys like Mexico? Oh, man. This will not be my first watch for those two movies. Those, you know, came out when I was in high school. And boy, howdy, did I... Would I have... If I had them on VHS, would have broken those tapes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us. Uh... Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Like I said, if you want to catch us on Twitter, we're at MatchCut or email us at MatchCutPod at gmail.com. So until next time, I've been Aaron. And I am Matt. And stay home and wash your hands. We'll catch you next time. And that's another one in the can. Damn it. I always forget that. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, do you want me to do that outro again or no, no, that? leave that in like that. <laughs> okay. Play, play it out too. Damn it. I always forget that. <laughs>